been a real honor uh, to be asked to speak at Pugwash. I've always uh, heard of Pugwash. I've been hearing about it for as long as I've been a Seventh-day Adventist, and I've always wished that I could come here. Well, finally, somebody invited me <laughs> and paid my way. <laughs> and that's, that's a real blessing. But another blessing that comes to me is the fact that my wife is with me. This is the one I love. And the only reason I brought her up here, I wanted to introduce her. And the reason is, my wife and I only spend five months out of every year together. We've been doing that for ten year, nine years or so, whatever it is. And to get her to come somewhere with me at any given time is always very special to me. Now, you'll be hearing from her Sunday afternoon at four o'clock. The reason that we only spend so little time together is because that she, nine years ago, got a burden. Uh, my brother, I think, said that we spent a lot of years in Africa. It's true. When we came back, they began to announce that there were 28,000 orphans in a specific place in Africa, and uh, they began to call us saying, we've got to do something. My wife went to investigate, and it's true. There were a lot of orphans there. I don't know if there was 28,000, but in any case, she went over there. She felt she needed to do something, and with nothing, she went there and just began a little work. Uh, whatever she could do, whatever she saw needed done, and by now, 10 years later, almost 10 years later, she has a whole institution all built up with dormitories and cafeterias and a school and houses and a, and a church and everything else. So... Four o'clock Sunday, the one I love here, is going to be speaking to you. You may go sit down. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I'll have you turn in your Bibles to um, Luke chapter 15. I've been asked to do a series of meetings on the parable of the prodigal son. Now, the parable of the prodigal son answers... The question, the basic, fundamental, most important question that every person should be asking. And everyone should be asking, what must I do to be saved? That's the one most important question that a person can ask. And I'm hoping that during the time that we spend together, that uh, we'll come to grips with this and we'll be able to say for ourselves, now, I understand, I understand, you all are Seventh-day Adventists, and I suppose if I threw the question out there, you all would have a, an answer to that question. Seventh-day Adventists are not without answers. But I'm hoping that this week the Lord will give us a little more insight, something that can help us to have an aha moment. I don't know, whatever the Lord wants to do. I'm very, very dependent upon what God will do this week, and I'm sure you are too. Now, when that question was asked in Acts chapter 16, verse 30, it was asked of a jailer after an earthquake and a breakout, and he began to realize who Paul and Silas were, and so he asked them the question, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember how Paul answered that question? All you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thy house and thou shalt be saved. Now, do you know that as Seventh-day Adventists, we tend to squirm a little bit when we hear so simple an answer, especially if it comes from evangelicals, you understand? Because we know that if evangelicals get a hold of that question and answer it with, all you have to do is believe, then you know pretty soon they'll have this law nailed to the cross 
and we were going to have to have a job in trying to help them to understand, no, no, it doesn't go there. Well, I'm not going to go there either, but I am going to try to answer this as much as I can. By the way, Paul's answer was biblical. You know that, don't you? <laughs> it was biblical back then, and it's still biblical today. That is the answer. And all that Paul was trying to say, hey, you want to be saved? Trust Jesus Christ to do it. Does it make sense to you? Is it that simple? Do you think that if he wanted to save you, he could do it? Well, let me tell you, there is no other way. There is no other way. If God doesn't save us, we cannot be saved. But he promises to do it. In Philippians 1 verse 6, what does it say? Being confident in this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will what? He'll perform it. He'll finish it. He'll complete it. Has the Lord begun a good work in you? Well, I doubt that you'd even be here if he hadn't begun some kind of work in you. And so it doesn't say, it doesn't measure how big a work he's begun in you. He has begun a good work in you. And the promise is, I can finish it. I will finish it. That's what he says. And friends, the only person that's not going to be in heaven, according to my own little estimation, and I'm only one man here, and I understand that it is my opinion. <laughs> See? But nevertheless, it is my opinion that the only person that will not be in the kingdom of heaven is the person that gives up. Yeah. Especially the person who wants to trust God to save her, to save him. God can do it. And I want to emphasize that this week as much as I can. I think it's Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that says that God will save everyone to the uttermost. He will save them to the uttermost who come to God through Jesus Christ because Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He can do this. He will do it. Okay, so now I had you turn to Luke chapter 15. This is where we're going to spend the whole week in Luke chapter 15. This is the parable of the prodigal son and I'm hoping that you'll be surprised before it's all over to find out all it is that we can learn there. As a matter of fact, this evening we're only going to look at the very first verse. This is verse 11 in Luke chapter 15 because that's the first verse of the parable and you can almost wonder what in the world can we even begin to learn by just so few words. Jesus is speaking, verse 11, and he said a certain man had two sons. Now take this verse, go prepare a sermon. <laughs> well, there is a sermon there and you can and if the Lord wants you to prepare a sermon on this verse, he will give it to you because that's the only way it works. By the way, if the Lord doesn't give you a sermon, you don't have a sermon. Jesus said, without me, you can do how much? No, you can't do anything. And so it's always a mystery to me. Uh, the number of times that I've had to preach in this world and all over the world that I am never at a position where I have nothing to say. It's true. And I praise the Lord always. And a certain man had two sons. Who is the certain man in this verse? Who is this referring to? God the Father. That's right. This is what Jesus had in mind. He spoke this parable in an effort to introduce God the Father to us, to the people. Okay? And he wanted to introduce God the Father as God the Father related to two sons. And so obviously the next question is, who are the two sons? Who do they represent in this parable. Do you know? Well, 
if you're going to answer, you're going to have speak loud enough for the speaker to hear you, because I can't tell whether you're speaking truth or not. So tell me again, who did the two sons represent? If you want to participate, speak up. Members. Before and after. Before and after. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of answers to this question, actually. There's a lot of answers. If you look at the parable itself, you could say, well, the elder brother represents the Jewish people and the younger brother represents the Gentile people. And actually, that, that, suit, that suits the parable very well. You could also go back to Cain and Abel, and there was an elder brother and there was a younger brother, and there's quite some parallels there also. And But for the sake of what we're going to speak about this evening, we'll just say that they represent the human race, and they represent the human race into two factions, if that's the right way to say it. I'm not quite sure. So it leads to the next question. Which of the two boys is good, and which of the two boys is bad? None, none good, none bad, just none. <laughs> They're both bad. And I think, you guys hear this sermon before? No? <laughs> I see. Yes, they're both bad. That's really the answer. Now, keep your finger right here, and we'll go to Matthew chapter 19. I want you to see that. And maybe the, um, the scripture readings that I, I chose for this evening gave you a clue. I don't know if you remember the scripture readings. But anyways, we're in Matthew 19. A rich young ruler approaches Jesus with the question that he needed to ask. He did not ask the wrong question here in verse 16. And behold, one came and said to him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now I want you to notice also that Jesus rarely answers a question that is asked of him directly. He almost always retorts by asking a question back. Now I don't know why he does that. There must be a principle. The only thing that I can think of is that the individual who asks the question has the advantage. Did you know that? Because you don't know, somebody comes to you with a question, you don't know where he's going with it, and so he has an advantage, right? But Jesus never lost the advantage. He always knew where they were going anyway. <laughs> and so generally he would turn around and ask a question, and that's what he did here in verse 17. He said to him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one that is God. Now who said these words? Does Jesus know what he's talking about? How many people are good in this world? Did you know that you are not good? Oh, friends, this is the basis of salvation. If you do not know that you are not good, you will be hard to save. No, absolutely. But if you know that you are not good, if you feel your need, if you know there is nothing going to heaven, there shall in no wise enter into heaven anything that defileth. Romans, uh, I mean, Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. If you know that, and then you look at yourself, and you feel, oh, I am such a sinner, then you have, you feel your need. And Desire of Ages 300 says, from the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. My God shall supply, what? All your needs. Do you feel your need? This is, we're told, speaks more eloquently in the ears of God than the most highfalutin prayer that you can pray. Because highfalutin prayers are just that. <laughs> ah, but from the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. What a promise that is. And so come to God with all of your needs. And by the way, Romans 
3 verse 10 to 12 we just read a few minutes ago there is none righteous no not one there is none that doeth good no not one there is none good but one that is God and there's no gods in here are there I hope not yeah so there's no one good in this room and so as we're looking at the parable of the prodigal son we know the two boys one is lost in the world he goes to his father he wants his inheritance and the only reason he wants the inheritance is uh, is so he can leave home and go and have a good time he wants to sin and he doesn't care who knows it but the elder brother has a bit of a different problem the elder brother is a church member yeah and because he's a church member and because he's never left his father and because and by the way the father represents God and so here's a young man who hasn't left God and he works for God so he's a church pastor or something like that okay and more than that I want you to notice something did you turn with me to Luke 15 look at verse 29 I want you to see this young man how good he was he thought verse 29 we're looking at Luke 15 and by the way this is after his brother has come home we're at the very end of the parable here and uh, the father throws a party for the young boy for the prodigal son but the elder brother refuses to go in so the elder father I mean the father goes out to entreat the elder brother we're looking at verse 29 this is the young man's answer to his father he answered and said unto him father look these many years do I serve thee neither transgressed I at any time thy commandments I have never broken the commandments now are you able to say that how many people in this room are able to say I've never broken the commandments no we can't say it because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and here's a young man who works for his father has never left the church and is able to claim that he has never broken the commandments now how good can you get he is really good yet somehow there seems to be something wrong with his Christian experience if you look at verse 28 it says there and he was angry now why would he be angry because his brother came home I don't know about you but if I had a brother who left the church left the Lord went outside to dissipate away his life in riotous living I would have a concern for, for that individual wouldn't you I mean, you could send him a Bible, you would send him a tract, you'd call him on the phone, you'd make an appeal to his heart. And when he comes home, you are angry? No way. No. Everybody else is rejoicing in the parable, but the elder brother is angry. And by this, we recognize that there's something wrong with his Christian experience. But there is something more, more decisive here to show us that there's something wrong with his Christian experience. Look at verse 29 again. There's a part we didn't read. And it says there that after he says, I have never transgressed thy commandments, it says there, yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Now the kid, what, was that, what does that represent? What's the symbol of a kid? What's the symbol of a lamb, a bullock, a goat? Do you know? Yes, yeah, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Do you know what he's saying here? I keep all the commandments of God and yet the merits of the atoning sacrifice have never been applied to me. Do you think it's possible that there are people in this world who think they're keeping all the commandments and yet they will not be saved? Do you think that's even possible? Yeah, yeah. 
And friends, it's possible right within this auditorium. It's possible within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. As a matter of fact, if there's anything we've ever been accused of as Seventh-day Adventists is that we are legalistic. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that there have been legalistic Seventh-day Adventists in this world. There's no doubt in my mind that there are still legalistic Seventh-day Adventists in this world. As a matter of fact, you're probably looking at one. You know, legalism is our problem. It's self-righteousness. It's being dependent on our own righteousnesses. It's being dependent on ourselves rather than putting faith in Jesus Christ. You see how it is? We all have a bout. We all have, have a fight with self-righteousness all the time. Yeah. Well, this young man was in the middle of the fight and he did not recognize it. And so he didn't understand that his type of religion did not save. He did not understand. Did I just drop myself? No, I'm still there. <laughs> it's right here. <laughs> he didn't understand that belonging to the church doesn't save anyone. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I hope we know that. I hope we know that. Turn with me to James chapter 1. I want to share with you three passages of Scripture that says that it's not enough to be religious. James chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 26 in James chapter 1. James 1, 26. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridles not his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is what? It's useless. Yeah, it's empty. It's vain. Rich young, no, excuse me, the elder brother in the parable had the right talk. He served his God. He never left the church. He knew what to say. He knew how to say it. But his religion was in vain. And how do we know? Because of what came out of his mouth. Isn't that right? Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it didn't matter what profession that he made, everyone could tell there was something wrong with him because he should have been rejoicing when his brother came home, but when his brother came home, he wasn't rejoicing. And out of his mouth came what was in his heart. Does that ever happen to anyone in here? Yeah, it happens to everyone in here. I often, you know, I don't know, most of you, I suppose, are married, have been married, you know what it is. Sometimes you get into a a little disagreement with your spouse and I have noticed in my own specific experience that if I begin to formulate arguments you know uh, against whatever it is my wife wants or I don't want and she wants whatever it might be if I begin to formulate arguments I'd better be careful on what the arguments are that I'm for formulating because they would come out of my mouth and very often I might be speaking to myself thoughts that I would not dare to utter, but I don't dare think them, because I know that if I think those thoughts, they will come out of my mouth, and the first thing you know, I'll be in far more trouble than I was before, <laughs> and that's how it was, and that's how it is here as we see, and so true religion comes out your mouth, it will, eventually, we can hide that some of the time, but we can't hide it forever. The second passage of scripture I'd like you to see is in Second Test, Second uh, Timothy, Second Timothy. We're going to go to chapter three in Second Timothy. 
We're going to begin with verse 1. And you'll notice in verse 1 it's talking about the last days. And so the Apostle Paul here is projecting forward all the way until today into the last days. And then he begins to describe what the men, what people will be like in the last days. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This know also that in the last days perilous times will come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. And it goes on and on and on telling what people will be like in the last days. Now if you go to verse 5, this is the punchline here. In verse 5 it says, They have a form of godliness but they deny the power thereof from such turn away. Yeah, yeah. They have the trappings. They have the rituals. They have the ceremonies. They're very religious. They do the right thing ceremoniously, but they have no power. And the power of God is in the Word of God. You know that. He spake and it stood fast. He commanded and there it was. And when God speaks something, it's true. The centurion came to Jesus and said, you know, I have a servant at home that's dying of the palsy. Can you come and heal him? Jesus says, hey, I'm ready to come and heal him. He says, you don't have to come to my house. I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. There is power in God's word. And friends, I am thinking about our church today. How much power do you see in Adventism today? There is not the power that there should be. And there's only one reason for that. And the only reason is we have not internalized the Word of God. And this is another picture of the elder brother. He may have been outwardly religious, ceremoniously religious, religious, ritualistically religious, but somehow he had not internalized the Word of God or he would have had far more power because it would have been the power of love. He would have received Jesus more and more. And of course, God is love. He would have treated his brother differently, don't you think? Yes, he would have. The third passage that I want to share with you is in Revelation chapter 3. Now, being Seventh-day Adventists, you're all aware of Revelation chapter uh, 3 or uh, Revelation altogether. It's a book of prophecy. It's made up of symbols. And when we're talking about the seven churches of Revelation, we're talking about Christianity from the time that it began till the time that it ends. If you go to the last church in Revelation chapter 3, to the church, the message to the Laodiceans there, you know that it's speaking to us specifically. It's speaking to us directly. So let's begin reading with verse 15. I know your works. This is the true witness that's speaking. He knows our works. He knows who we are, doesn't he? Oh yes, he does that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And here we begin to see that Christianity in the last days makes Jesus sick. There's something wrong with Christianity today. We're not cold, we're not hot. We are not on fire for Jesus. We've got one foot in the world and we don't want to leave the world because we don't want to miss out on anything. There's a lot of toys out there and there's a lot of excitement going on. And we've got one foot in the church. We don't want to leave the church because if we leave the church, we're going to be lost. Well, friends, I wonder if we're saved anyway on that program in any case. You see, now Jesus wants to point to the fact 
or, or he wants to tell us what is wrong with us besides the fact that we're indecisive, that we're neither hot nor cold. Verse 17. Because you say I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And this too is a picture of the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Because he had never left the church, because he was working for his father, because he was keeping all the commandments, he thinks that he is spiritually rich in need of nothing. And friends, he didn't need anything because he looked at himself and he was doing everything that he knew that he should be doing. And because he was behaving, because he was performing correctly, therefore everything was all right with his soul. But we know that everything was not all right with his soul. Yeah, he didn't realize his spiritual poverty, his spiritual nakedness, his spiritual blindness. So I have a question to ask you this evening. Are you spiritually rich or are you spiritually poor, blind, and naked? And don't answer this question because it's a trick question. Okay? Now can you obey those, that injunction? <laughs> I hope so. Now supposing you met a fine-looking Southern Baptist on a street corner here somewhere in Canada. He would have a question for you. Do you remember? Do you know what question he would be asking you? Are you saved? Yes, it's not a bad question. Everyone should be asking this question and we ought to be answering that question. So if you were meeting a Southern Baptist on a street corner in downtown Pugwash, does Pugwash have street corners? <laughs> Just wondering. <laughs> Yeah, what would you say if he asked, are you saved? What would you say? Yes. yes, of course. I am in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, I have salvation. Well then, if you have salvation, are you spiritually rich or are you spiritually poor, blind, and naked? Don't answer it. <laughs> you see, we have the idea right here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. We have the idea that this text is teaching that the lost are poor, blind, and naked and that the saved are not poor, blind, and naked. But this is not what the verse is saying. This is not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying that the lost don't know that they are poor, blind, and naked. And what do you suppose the saved know? They know it. The only difference between the lost and the saved is that the saved have a have an intrinsic knowledge of their undoing. They feel their sinfulness. In Steps to Christ, page 64, paragraph 2, it says, the closer we come to Jesus, the more faulty we will appear in our own eyes. Yeah, well, how do you feel if you're faulty? You know, we don't, we don't like to make mistakes. We don't like to be sinful. We don't like to be found out. We don't like to be found with our hand in the cookie jar. No, we always feel bad. At least I always feel bad if I do something wrong, if I say something wrong, or if I hurt someone. But let me tell you something. This is the nature we have. And because we have a sinful nature, what do people with sinful natures do, by the way? No kidding. Yeah, they sin. And how do you feel about it? Bad. Praise the Lord you feel bad about it. The closer you come to Jesus, the reason... The closer we come to Jesus, the more faulty we will appear in our own eyes is because the closer you come to perfection, the more, by contrast, you begin to see yourself. By contrast now, you see. And so, if in your Christian experience you have times when you feel really bad about yourself, 
Praise God, you're getting closer to Jesus. Because the problem with the elder brother in the parable is that he didn't feel any need at all. He was doing great. He was in the church, he was working for God, and he kept all the commandments. And when he looked at himself, it was like, right on, this is who I am, and it's great. Wow. Well, let's see here. Let's look at the word poor for a minute. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Poor, blind, and naked. We're looking at the word poor. We're turning to the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at the very first Beatitude. This is uh, verse 3 in Matthew chapter 5. And I want you to see something of note here about the word poor. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm here to tell you, I've been a Seventh-day Adventist for nearly 40 years, um, and this is one verse that took me uh, decades and decades to figure out. I just could not understand what in the world Jesus was trying to, to say. Uh, my brother and I grew up in a Roman Catholic home, and as far as I know, at least the only time I ever heard my father quote the scriptures was this verse. And he didn't quote it out of Matthew, he used to quote it out of, out of Luke. And it says there, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, um, it made me think, he, he, had, he had it all figured out, we were poor, and because we were poor, then surely we were saved. But you know, I had met some pretty poor people who were pretty raunchy also. And it seemed to me they couldn't be in the kingdom of heaven being as they were. Just because they were poor, in my mind, didn't fit, didn't fit my father's theology somehow. There was another thing that messed up with my mind. I could see Jesus being God, coming down from heaven, and if he was coming down from heaven, then he would begin to scan the horizon to find someone who was spiritually rich. And if he could find someone who was spiritually rich, he would say, Blessed are the spiritually rich, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say it. Do you know why he doesn't say that? Because there aren't any. There is none good but one that is God. You see, Jesus didn't come for the spiritually rich because there aren't any. He came for those who felt their spiritual poverty and their need of help from God. And that's what it means here. We can do the same thing with the word blind. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We're going to begin with verse 39 in John chapter 9. Jesus is surrounded with a whole bunch of scribes and Pharisees. And he has something to say to them in verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. So who did Jesus come for, the seeing or the blind? He came for the blind. That's exactly right. But there was a problem with the Pharisees in that saying. They're standing around, they're listening to Jesus speaking, and they're starting to scratch their head. And they're saying, are you saying that I am a blind man? Don't you know that I have been to seminary? Don't you know that I have been to rabbinical schools? Don't you know that I have been to the schools of the prophets? Why would you say that I am blind? The Lord has trained me in all of these schools to be a guide to the blind. Don't come here telling us that we're blind. You see, they were insulted. We can see that in verse 40. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said to him, 
Are we blind? Are you saying that we're blind? Now watch how Jesus answers this in verse 41. And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. And all that Jesus is trying to say here is, You have need of help for guidance from God. You, it is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Don't go telling me that you can see there's not, an, um, there's not a man in this world, there's not a woman in this world that knows where they're going. Now, have you ever met some people who think they know everything? <laughs> Wonderful people, right? <laughs> what a pain that is. Well, it's because it isn't true. It just isn't true. There isn't one of us, one of us who actually knows everything. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, we know nothing, that's what it says. We know nothing as we ought to know it. Now, there must be something that you're really good at. Some of you are experts. I don't know in what, in, about, in some things. Okay, now you who are an expert at whatever it is you're an expert, do you think there's nothing left to learn, that there isn't anything else you could learn about the thing you're an expert in? Who here has become so good at one thing that you're as good as God is in it? Well, that's ridiculous, isn't it? But it happens to be the truth. It just happens to be the truth. And we have nothing to boast about. Absolutely nothing. We have need of God every step of the way, all the time. This is what this is all about. Okay, I've jumped ahead, way ahead of my notes, so that I don't even know where I am. Yeah. Let me tell you a little story. I spent many, uh, nine and a half years working in the mines in Sudbury, Ontario. Copper, nickel, mines, some of you will know. You probably have had relatives there. <laughs> Seems like half the, half the workers in the mines in Sudbury came from the Maritimes. But anyway, I was working there for nine years. And then I began reading the Bible when I was 25 years old. And I decided that I would read the book from cover to cover before I would make a decision to say whether it was what it claimed to be or not. Well, you understand it doesn't work that way. You understand that, right? A couple of weeks down the road, I'm reading the Bible, and I'm fully convicted, fully convicted that this is the Word of God. Well, it didn't take long after that that uh, my wife and I were baptized. I was 27 years old. She was 25 years old. We became Seventh-day Adventists. Well, when we became Seventh-day Adventists, then there's a huge desire. There's a huge need that builds up in your heart. You want to tell people of what a friend you have found in Jesus. And so I began as much as I could uh, right there where I was, but it wasn't big enough. And so we decided that I would quit working in the mines and that I would, we would join a little supporting ministry there in Ontario called Woodland Park Foundation Missionary Training School. I was there two years, my wife and I as students. Then we were on staff for one year. And then the year after that, they made me the president. Ta-da! Didn't make much sense, does it? No, I hardly knew anything, and I was made the president. Well, you know, hey, God can do anything he wants. You know the story of Joseph? He came out of a dungeon, and he was made the governor of Egypt. How much sense does that make? That's even harder to explain than what happened to us. Well, anyway, because I was the president now of Woodland Park Foundation, and because I didn't know 
the principles of leadership, the only thing I knew was that if you worked your tail off, maybe you could succeed at doing something. So that's what we did. And my thought was, we're just going to work as hard as we can. So if there were too many students for the school, they would be in our house. If there was anyone visiting the institution, we would host them. If there was a heavy end to the load, that's the end we would lift. If there was a dirty end to the stick, that's the end we would handle. We were just going to work and work and work and we were going to succeed at this thing somehow. Well, I don't know about you ladies, but I married one. And she uh, came to me about a year down the road and she says, Oh, wait a minute. As far as I understand in the scriptures, it says that we cannot work our way into heaven. And this is not living... We're just working ourselves to death. We need to leave this place. Well, I didn't know how to answer that except to say, I can see how God led us here. I don't see Him leading us away. I can see Him put a, a load, a responsibility on my shoulders, but I, I don't see Him relieving me of this responsibility. I don't know what to do. I mean, been led by God and I won't be led by anything else. And so that held for a while. Now, a year or two down the road, my wife comes back to me and she said, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to take the kids and I'm going to go. Well, I said, I can see how the Lord gave us this responsibility, but he's not relieving me of it. I can see how he led us here, but he's not leading us away. I don't know what to do. And that held for a little while. Until about five years down the road now. Now, you know, you can see how patient she is. Five years down the road... She began to use the D word. Do you know the D word? What word is that? Divorce. Yeah, some of you have used it. <laughs> yeah, she began. So, you know, I tell you what, it began to feel like that was serious. I mean, it's getting pretty far. <laughs> I didn't know exactly uh, how I was going to. You know, I'm telling you the wrong story, I think. <laughs> yes. I degraded and went the wrong direction. I'm going to tell you this story, though, sometime this week. Let's back up a little bit, okay? Some guys have ways of embarrassing themselves. <laughs> I'll be telling you this story. It won't be long. Let me tell you another story. It's the same, same scenario. We're at Woodland Park, and the fellow who is responsible for having me there as the leader of the institution, knew that I didn't know very much about the institution, about leadership. So he decided that he would nurture me somehow. Now you have to understand that he lived in Tennessee. Well, he lived in Georgia, actually. And I lived in northern Ontario. And this was what at a time like 1978, at a time when uh, there were no cell phones. Did you know there was no cell phones in 1978? Yeah. Do you know that the only way to communicate in those days was long-distance phone call? Do you know what you did when you got a, a long-distance phone call? Somebody would answer the phone and they'd start yelling, Hurry up! It's long-distance! <laughs> and that's how it was, and that's the only way he could communicate unless he wrote me a letter. By the way, there was no emails back then either. And so he would call me up and he would say, trying to nurture me, you understand, he would say, we're going to have a little convention in Massachusetts or we're going to have one in in New Hampshire, we're going to have one somewhere else at Oak Haven in Michigan, whatever. I want you to make your way there. And I've already organized for you to speak at these conventions. And then at the end, there will be a board meeting. They're going to invite you and you're going to begin to get a training in what leadership is all about. Well, in 1980, he called me up 
And he said to me, he says, listen, there's going to be a convention in a little place called Eden Valley in northern Colorado. And I've already organized for you to speak there. You need to make your way over there. And everything's set up. And I'm thinking, no way, no way. Do you know how far it is from northern Ontario to northern California? Colorado, it's a long, long way. And it's not like I had done a lot of travel by now. And he wants, he expects me to jump in my car and drive for days towards Colorado. It just seems so unreasonable to me. But anyway, I did it anyhow. Uh, you know, he convinced me I should do it. I left one day, I drove 14 hours, and I ended up in southern Michigan in this little place called Oak Haven. It's another supporting ministry there. They gave me a room where I could sleep that evening. And I went to bed, and in the morning I woke up to singing. Now apparently there was a little chapel underneath the bedroom that I had, so I made my way downstairs to go and worship with the people. I sat among them, and I was listening to a young black preacher, pastor, I have no idea who he was. I only remember one thing that he said. He said, Seventh-day Adventists are self-righteous. Well, you know, Seventh-day self Seventh-day Adventists are self-righteous, we know that. But I didn't know that at the time. I was brand new, practically, and I couldn't understand what he was saying. Why would he say that Seventh-day Adventists are self-righteous? I mean, after all, I'd been a Seventh-day Adventist now for about three years or four or five, whatever it was at this time, and, and he is saying that we're self-righteous, and I'm not understanding. My life has changed completely. I changed the day that I worship on. I changed the clothes we were wearing. We didn't, we, you know, we took off the jewelry. We took off the, 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 the makeup. We, we ate beans a lot. And, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff that we changed in our lives. And I thought we were doing great. And he's telling us that we're self-righteous. I don't understand. So I'm sitting in the middle of the crowd, and I lift up my voice to the Lord in prayer. I said, Lord, am I self-righteous? Do you know that God answers sometimes? Now, it might have happened to me, you know, less than five times in my life that God answered me, not audibly, yet I knew that it was God speaking to me. I, I was receiving thoughts that I did not originate, you understand. And right there in my seat, God said, yes, you are self-righteous. And I was blown away. I didn't know what to think. And so God continued to ask questions of me. He said, what is your biggest complaint? I said, well, my biggest complaint is I don't have enough time to pray. I don't have enough time for my devotions. I don't have as much time for my Bible as I would like to have. I'm the leader of an institution now, and I'm swamped with work, and we're working and working and working, and I wish I could spend more time on my knees with Jesus. And God said, that proves that you are self-righteous. And I thought, what in the world? How does that prove that I'm self-righteous? Well, he continued to speak to me. He said, if for one minute, if for one minute you could feel the weight of the responsibilities that I've put on your shoulders, if for one minute you could feel your responsibility as the husband of a wife, as the father of three children, as the leader of an institution, as the head elder of the church, as a witness in the community, if for one minute you could feel the responsibilities that I've given you, you couldn't do anything but pray. Don't tell me you don't have time to pray. The only reason you don't have time to pray is you go off half-cocked. You go off out there to meet your responsibilities without my help. You are self-righteous. Have you ever complained that you don't have enough time for your Bible, <clears throat> that you don't have enough time. That's nonsense, you know. I'll be telling you some stories this week of 
some messes that I've gotten myself in that forced me to pray two and a half, three hours every day, every day, every day. Now, it's not because I didn't have any work to do. It was because from the soul that feels his need, then nothing is withheld because he petitions the the throne of God because he feels his need of help from God. If you are not praying as much as you'd like to pray, if you're not praying as much as you should be praying, if you're not reading your Bible like you should, beware. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.